The Energy Gang is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is driving toward a clean transportation future. In most of the U.S., transportation is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions, and that's certainly true in California. It's why PG&E is working hard to make it easier for customers to go electric. Be it new rebates on your next personal vehicle purchase or support adding charging stations at your parking lot and electrifying your fleet, PG&E can help individuals, businesses, and cities invest in the right electrified transportation options. To find out how you can take your transportation electric, visit pge.com slash gtmev. That's pge.com forward slash gtmev. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome to the show. This week, the tech giants are all going long on renewables, but Amazon seems to be going long on oil and gas. A new story details Amazon's budding romance with the fossil fuel industry, while it continues to lag behind its peers in buying clean energy for its operations. Other tech companies are using their analytics for helping extract more fossil fuels. But is the extent of Amazon's pursuit unique? Then, a new study shows that three-quarters of all coal in the U.S. is more expensive than new renewables, but there's an ongoing push in states from coal groups to force plants to stay open, the latest in the attempt to save coal at the state level. Finally, the Supreme Court rejects a challenge to state nuclear subsidies, a green light for more states to save their nuke fleets. In Washington, D.C. is co-host Catherine Hamilton, the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Good morning. And just outside Washington, D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland, is Jigger Shah. He's the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hello. Do either of you find yourself getting angry at the big tech firms? Like, what's your rage level right now? Well, my rage level is pretty high, but that's because of the new TED Talk that's been making the rounds um, from that reporter from The Observer around Facebook's role in uh, the election of 2016 and the Brexit vote. I mean, it's it's really extraordinary to me what a lack of values really does to a company. Yeah, so I'm just feeling superior because I've never been on Facebook. So <laughs> what what was considered really dopey for a long time is now considered a brilliant decision. <laughs> well, we've got another reason to be angry at those big tech firms. And it's not just stealing elections. It's pulling more fossil fuels out of the ground. Journalist and author Brian Merchant has a new piece in Gizmodo on Amazon's campaign to help improve oil and gas extraction. Now, Amazon Web Services owns around 40% of the cloud computing market. And now it wants to use that power to create what it calls the digital oil field of the future. In briefing materials published by Merchant, AWS specifically says it wants to find oil faster, recover more oil, and reduce the cost per barrel. Uh, it could not be more clear about its mission. Now, look, we all know that oil and gas is going to continue to play a big role in the global energy mix. But we also know that we need to take less and less of it out of the ground. It's just physics, folks. And Amazon is now using its extraordinary clout in the cloud to make sure that we take as much out of the ground as we possibly can. So Microsoft and Google also have similar data plays in oil and gas. But Amazon's branding feels different in its aggressive approach. At the same time, the company has lagged in renewables procurement on the electricity side, which is why 5,000 employees signed an open letter to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos telling him to take climate change seriously. Bezos, so far, seems cool on the idea. 
Jigger, uh, detail Amazon's activity in fossil fuels right now. How does it stack up with how other tech companies are developing products for the industry? Well, the interesting thing is that the oil and gas industry is very interested in tech, right? So, you know, one of the the better stories, I would say, other than Amazon, is Tom Siebel's C3. If you remember back five, six years ago, he spent a lot of his own money, I think over $150 million, and then Exelon put $20 million into it to create a big data play to help utility companies manage their assets more efficiently. In fact, he did that so that you know people like PG&E could get a handle on their transmission assets, etc. He got no traction. He hired the top five utility people from McKinsey, all that other stuff. So what did he do? He pivoted completely to oil and gas because oil and gas guys were like, this is awesome using big data and AI, and I can figure out like what's happening in every well, and I can get smarter with all of my capital decisions, I'd be happy to sign up. And so he signed up Shell in 2017 to a massive contract. And, you know, he's off to the races. And so, like, you know, part of this is really just recognizing that the, the oil and gas folks actually have an insatiable appetite for self-improvement. So what you're saying is that it might be easier to develop these products for the oil and gas market because they're adopting them faster and they're more sophisticated. And they're also trying to access much harder to get products in the ground so they have a greater need for them. Are you saying that it's a better market because of that pull from oil and gas? Well, it's a better market because they have willing partners who recognize what they're offering, right? I mean, when you think about Amazon in particular, frankly, isn't doing all that much. I don't think that their big data and AI solutions are actually that interesting to the oil and gas industry. What the oil and gas industry are more interested in is AWS and and basically the use of the cloud, because getting the data backhauled into the cloud is one of their biggest challenges, because a lot of these oil and gas wells are in very remote places. And so figuring out the telecom um, backhaul services is actually, you know, not a trivial exercise. But I think it's more sort of Tom Siebel and the C3 folks who are bringing the analytics. And I think that in the end, the oil and gas guys say, wow, that's really interesting. Let me put my 50 best people on it to help you figure this out with you. Whereas a lot of the other folks like cities and smart cities or electric utility companies or others, they require 50 in-person meetings before they even like think about doing something. Yeah, it was interesting because at Sarah Week in Houston a month or two ago, Amazon Web Services was everywhere. They had tons of space that they were using. They had lots of demos. And so I think that they're going to where the the technology solutions, where they can offer technology solutions through data. Um, But at the same time, I see this as being useful for any sector. So there's another company that I've been kind of following, Axelus, that does um, digital twins. They have been marketing themselves to offshore oil rigs, but they said just as easily they could do it for offshore wind or any kind of facility. So I feel like as you develop these sophisticated solutions, it doesn't You know, it could very easily cross sector. Right. So most of the companies with some kind of service like this, whether it be a cloud computing service or a really deep data analytics service, is going to be focusing on the manufacturing sector, on all sorts of energy businesses. But Amazon isn't doing a lot in the renewables and grid optimization and smart cities space, it seems to be putting most of its eggs in the fossil fuel basket. And that 
does feel a little bit different to me. Whereas a company like GE or a company like Microsoft, sure, they operate in all those businesses, but they've put a huge amount of money behind smart buildings, behind resource optimization, and Amazon has not done that at all, which makes this fossil fuel courtship stand out all the more. AWS makes 58% of all of Amazon's earnings. They make more than half their earnings in AWS, not on selling stuff to you and me. And so they're going out and saying, who can we sell our services to that will pay top dollar? That's not going to negotiate, that's not going to try to get a discount, but actually just going to pay us real hard cash for our services because they get real hard value for our services, right? And the oil and gas industry pays. They're happy to pay. So does the mining industry and so do other industries. And so like, I, I get the fact that there is an entire thread within the environmental movement, which you know I generally support, where they're saying, you know, look, we should we should shut down coal because it's just bad in the, from a moral sense, right? In the same way that Patagonia said, we no longer want our brand next to um, you know oil and gas company brands. But I think that in Amazon's case, they're not unlike Microsoft or Verizon or any other company that sells to the oil and gas industry that says, look, they're willing to pay. We have a service. We want to make good margins, and so we're going to go where the money is. I think what I'm really reacting to is that this is wrapped up in Amazon's lack of leadership on energy and climate issues. It hasn't done a great job of procuring renewables compared to its peers. It has delayed any sort of sustainability plan, and it's dragged its feet, and it's mostly developed plans in reaction to environmental groups. It doesn't release its emissions And when you look at other big retailers, more specifically a company like Walmart, that's a company that put a pretty significant climate plan in place back in 2005, and they surpassed most of their targets. And then they said, you know what, we're going to reduce our carbon emissions by a gigaton, and we're going to do it through our supply chain. And like that that's the kind of model that we should be holding up for a company like Amazon. And I think that's why you're sensing the outrage in my voice. It's Sure, they have good marketing, but compared to their peers, they're really struggling here. Yeah, so I think Stephen calling out Amazon's hypocrisy is one thing and saying they should be a better company. But you also can't fault them for, you know, they are operating in a capitalist society and they feel like if we can sell a product, if we can make some money helping the oil and gas folks have some oil field automation and be able to drill more efficiently, you can't fault them for that if that's what their business model is. Like it's it's up to their board um, and it's up to people who buy or use their products to hold them accountable. So you can certainly do that from that aspect, but we can't expect them to change unless there's some other force that's making them change. I totally agree. I mean, that that's absolutely correct. Both you and Jigger are absolutely correct. It's a capitalistic society. Amazon can do whatever it wants, but people should know the consequences of those actions. And I suspect that as more attention is paid to this, there may be some kind of reaction. We got one reaction from within the company and more than 5,000 employees signed an open letter to Bezos saying, hey, get your act together. Let's see some kind of climate leadership here. And, you know, Amazon really hasn't done much. They haven't reacted to the letter publicly. But clearly, this is getting enough attention that thousands of employees within the company are saying something's got to give. 
Well, and I definitely agree with the fact that Amazon has been behind systematically around their own carbon emissions. I remember, you know, talking to the folks at Amazon, Jeff Bezos said that LED lighting retrofits had to pay itself back in eight months, or else he wouldn't do them, right? I mean, they've been slow to uh, building renewable energy plants around the country, they were sort of late to that party. And now that party seems to have fizzled out. They're, you know, sort of moving slowly on on electric vehicles for their last mile deliveries. And so in general, I agree with you that Amazon has not been a great corporate citizen around all of these environmental issues with for their own environmental footprint. And I definitely think that they should get demerits for that. So Catherine, you've been focused on the renewable electricity side. Has their procurement fizzled out. We hadn't heard announcements for a while. We just heard an announcement uh, a couple weeks ago about the procurement of electricity from two wind farms. But uh, where does Amazon stand in how it buys renewable energy? Yeah, so Greenpeace did a recent report called Clicking Clean Virginia, and they focused on Virginia's data data center alley in Loudoun County because 70% of the world's internet traffic goes through it, which was amazing to me. Um, And the numbers are stack up this way. So Facebook is about 37% renewables, Microsoft 34%. Google and digital reality, 4%. So that's really low. Amazon, 12%. So that's where they stack up with that. Apple offsets 100% with renewables. And Salesforce offsets 44% renewables, but they don't have on-site. So I also started digging around because Amazon, of course, is going to locate one of its headquarters in very close to where I am, about a mile and a half from where I live in Arlington County, and just tried to figure out like, all right, so what are they going to do here in Arlington? And how could they manage, you know, to purchase from clean energy? So the process in Arlington is very, very negotiated because of the Dillon rule in Virginia. We've talked about this a little bit. Um, They can't have any um, cities and counties can't have any processes that are like more stringent than the state codes, no building codes and standards more stringent than the state codes. So um, the way they do it in Arlington is they have a negotiation and they sit down with a company that's going to build a new building and they make sure that if it's a housing that they have affordable housing and if it's not housing, then it then they have to give money to affordable housing contributions. They have to do transportation improvements and that could include you know, it, it could include electric vehicle charging stations. It include it could include metro station entrances. Um, the third bucket is public art funding that they have to provide. And the fourth is this green building incentive program. And because of the Dillon rule, they can't require, you know, like lead gold plus, but that's what they end up getting because what they'll do is they give them bonus density incentives for better performing buildings. So that is really part and parcel of what they're doing. And, and, you know, Amazon has an active energy desk. And if they are sitting down for a negotiation in Arlington, whatever they come up with in their building is going to have to comply with all of these these different categories. And it also will start engaging in probably a PPA so that, you know, they're purchasing power from outside of Arlington that they can't cite their site renewables right there because of the building density. So literally all the stuff that they're doing that's interesting has to be litigated piece by piece. Well, at least in uh, in an area where everything has to be very carefully negotiated, um, 
That said, I think Arlington County has, you know, holds holds companies' feet to the fire for a lot of these negotiations. We'll see how it goes. But, um, you know, you could end up with a really well-performing new building that provides a lot of public good in the county. The other revelation from this piece from Brian Merchant was something I didn't realize, and that is that Amazon actually sells the wrecks that it generates from its renewable energy projects that it contracts with. And that means that someone else in another market of the country doesn't have to build new renewables. They can just buy those wrecks that Amazon has hedged. And it means that less renewable energy ultimately gets built. And the other tech giants, meanwhile, retire their renewable energy credits when they're generated. Jigger, what's the significance of that? Does it matter? Well, you know, I think that the nuances do matter. But in this case, I would say that what it says is that Amazon is like everyone else. They're the same <laughs> as GE and Siemens. And like GE is not 100% renewable energy. Siemens is not 100% renewable energy. For all of the, you know, money that they could be making in this space, they're not there either, right? And so the Googles and the you know, sort of Reba, you know, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance that uh, I think Miranda uh, Ballantyne is running and all that stuff is really valuable. I totally get it. But I think what's more valuable in this day and age is to convince every single state legislature to pass a 100% clean energy bill. And then these corporations don't have a choice. Then they just get supplied by 100% clean energy because everyone gets 100% clean energy. Coming up. States are trying to take nukes and coal off the endangered species list. First, let's talk about electrification. So now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet. And if you're in PG&E service territory, you can take advantage of limited time incentives as part of PG&E's new EV fleet program. They are focused on school buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, any kind of fleet vehicle. So get educated, gain access, and make the smart choice to take your fleet electric. PG&E provides substantial financial, logistical, and construction support for all the electrical infrastructure needed to charge a customer's fleet. And with new commercial EV rates from PG&E, fueling your fleet just became simpler and likely cheaper. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists and learn more at pge.com gtmev. An economic analysis from Energy Innovations recently found that 74% of America's coal fleet is more expensive to run than wind and solar. By 2025, 85% of our coal plants will be more expensive than renewables. Now, reasonable economists may disagree on integration costs of renewables versus operating costs of coal plants, but the fact remains, a lot of coal is uneconomic, which is why plants are shutting down by the thousands of megawatts every year. The Energy Policy Network... A loose coalition of coal producers is taking a cue from environmentalists, though. Rather than work on a local level to shut coal plants down, they're working on keeping them running, sometimes through legislative action designed to keep coal plants alive for many years to come. Meanwhile, the DOE is putting $100 million behind carbon capture, that was announced this week, to potentially give the remaining plants a lifeline. Hey, if they can't do it through new market rules, maybe they can do it with technology. So lots of interesting activity on the coal front Catherine, what is your sense for how things have shifted on the state level? Let's just say the Beyond Coal campaign has a bit of a head start on the Energy Policy Network. So, you know, if you look at what's happening in the states, and I am not an expert on state by state internal politics, which are indeed gnarly. So every state has a different story and every vote has a different background. Um, That said, 
there is not a broad coalition that supports coal. It's really just some coal companies. The utilities don't want coal. The clean energy companies don't want coal. Consumer advocates don't want coal. So there really is a sort of a small group that's trying to get this done. So they've lost some battles, maybe not the long-term war in some of these states, but they're definitely losing some of these votes. So for example, in Indiana, there was a bill to not allow any generation to be built that would compete against a coal plant. And this is NIPSCO, one of the utilities there, wanted to replace a coal plant with solar. And this was an effort to, to defy that. And it didn't win. In Montana, uh, one of the coal units wanted to add more megawatts. And that was pushed back also. Now that may, they're going to probably try to revive that. But there was a big argument that in both of these cases, these were really anti-consumer bills. So you're seeing this um, from the point of view of that it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for consumers, but it also doesn't make economic sense. And there, it, there aren't a lot of entities that collectively want coal to survive. Now, Around the 2013 time frame was when we saw state groups led by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, go into states and try to craft legislation that would cap net metering, strip renewable portfolio standards, maybe take away other incentives. A lot of it was focused on net metering, though. And there was a decent amount of movement on this. A lot of conservative lawmakers in particular were compelled by the arguments that Alec was making. And we we saw a protracted battle in states over a lot of these renewable energy policies. Now, the renewables industry largely won that battle in the years since. The Energy Policy Network is a pretty small organization, and they haven't been that successful. Utilities are shutting down coal en masse, and they have a clear economic case for it. So is this different? I mean, the track record isn't as good here on the coal side. Well, one thing you haven't mentioned is natural gas. So a lot of the utilities want to want natural gas to win over coal anyway. So it, this isn't necessarily about renewables. It's more about coal not being cost effective. Right. It's just a sheer economic decision that they're making. And it's not necessarily this pro-renewables argument. I mean, I, I I hope that it's not just an economic argument. I mean, I do think that coal really does kill people. And I think we had that battle since the 90s about how many people coal kills on a regular basis. And I do think that there have been lawsuits that have been fought over this and National Academy of Sciences studies that prove it. I mean, the reason why pregnant women today are still told not to eat fish is because of mercury from coal plants. So like, I, I just think that there's lots of people who want to kill coal. There are people with asthma. There are lots of people that, you know, I think just believe that we should not be burning these rocks anymore uh, for electricity. And so, yeah, you're right. Some people want to go to natural gas. Some people want to go to um, renewables. I don't necessarily think this is an econ economic argument alone for me. I don't think it's a moral argument. Yeah, so I talked to Joe Daniel from Union of Concerned Scientists, and and that was exactly what he said, too, is that, yeah, there are some costs, but it's really hard to um, argue in favor of coal when most people prefer clean energy and clean air, and all these reliability and resilience arguments don't hold up either. So it's just much harder to defend. Right. On the moral piece, I 
agree that it's this moral argument, and I do not want to undersell the decades and decades of work that local activists who were protesting coal plants because of their local environmental and health consequences have played in this. They set the the groundwork for the campaign against coal. But it was only in the last six to eight years when the shifting economics of renewables helped environmentalists and the Beyond Coal campaign. Without that economic argument, I think this would still be a case-by-case basis. But with it, you see thousands, if not tens of thousands of megawatts of coal retired every year. So I feel like, of course, there's a moral argument to this, but it feels much more like an economic one. And it's why in states like Indiana or Montana or Wyoming, these legislative efforts to protect coal haven't necessarily succeeded. So just because they haven't been succeeding in the state house doesn't mean that this administration doesn't want to still continue to try to assist the coal industry. So, you know, they've they've announced, you know, $100 million on CCS. They've, they're trying to do these, uh, what they call coal first, which are first stands for flexible, innovative, resilient, small, transformative coal plants, which if you can imagine tractor trailer trucks with little tiny coal plants on the back of them um, traveling around, that's kind of where they're headed. So I talked to uh, Taylor Kuykendall, who reports quite a lot from coal country in West Virginia. He's from West Virginia, although he lives in Virginia. Um, and he said, you know, this is like five or 10 years from now. They're trying to, they're trying to put research dollars into these little tiny plants? Like, first of all, who's going to want to get that money? Is anybody going to want to try to develop that? Maybe a couple of labs might want to work on it. But people in coal states aren't waiting for 10 years down the road, some tiny little coal plant to come to their town. Uh, You know, you want a big coal plant next to a big mine if you want any kind of coal at all. But if this is where we end up, if the years of efforts on the federal level to change market rules result in us just dumping tens of millions of dollars into new tech development, hey, I'm all for that. And in fact, I actually agree that the government should be investing in this, not necessarily because we should be continuing a lot of coal use in the country, but because developing countries are going to be building coal plants for a long time, even though many of those plans are being canceled, there's still a lot of coal going up. And if the U.S. can develop the technology, then, you know, that benefits us from a trade perspective. And it uh, it helps technology share and allow countries to reduce their emissions if they're still using coal. So if this is the result, $100 million in CCS R&D, why not? One last piece from me, though, is that I think that as we shut down these coal plants, which are accelerating, um, you were also dealing with the consequences of burning coal for many years. I mean, you know, most of the utility companies who've studied the problem recently have now realized that they have to completely dig out their coal fly ash ponds and figure out new ways of storing that fly ash. I mean, this is going to be a huge environmental disaster that we have to live with for decades to come. Okay. While some states are looking to save their coal plants, others are trying to save their nuke plants. And the campaign to keep nuclear plants going just got a boost. Illinois, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut have all passed bills that create new subsidies for ailing nuclear plants. We have talked about each of them on this show. They realized how hard it's going to be to meet climate goals in the short term without the zero carbon energy from those facilities in operation. But a power industry group challenged those subsidy programs in court, and the challenge made its way to the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. 
Catherine, you are the closest thing we have to a legal scholar on this podcast. So what did the Supreme Court decide? How did this thing work its way through the courts? Uh, give us the, 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 the legal background on this, if you can. Yes, so it's terrifying that I would be the legal scholar. Honestly, I, I don't know what it says about the two of, of us. <laughs> no, most mostly I just go to the altar of Ari Pesco, and and he explains everything to me on Twitter in a way that I can really understand. So there are a couple of different things happening. One is that this group that you mentioned, EPSA, the Electric Power Supply Association, it bills itself as very pro competition, and they have. They have companies like BP and Shell, but they also have Calpine NRG, even Invenergy. And their whole goal is to protect wholesale power markets and not let states put the thumb on the scale for any kind of technology. So there was a big win that they got in Maryland. It's Hughes versus Talon. And what the Supreme Court said in that case was that when you develop energy storage policy to the state, in this case it was Maryland, and if your policy depends on interstate markets and commerce, then it becomes the jurisdiction under the Federal Power Act and FERC. So in that situation, what Maryland was trying to do was very dependent on the entire market for energy. However, in Illinois and New York, what those policies did were those were limited to state policy. So they were only state internal policy initiatives, just like an RPS would be a clean energy standard, a ZEC case would be the same thing. So the Supreme Court decided not to hear that because that really was a different line. That was you aren't your state policy is dependent on what you want to accomplish in the state. And then in that case, you know, they were, those states were billing it as zero emission. You know, you're able to do that as long as it doesn't rely on having to participate in the wholesale markets. So there are some cases coming up that may not be as cut and dry, like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New Jersey, where they may or may not be in this situation of depending on the wholesale market to make their case. So it seems then that that would have influence on how states set up their public policy. Exactly. So that's about what does a state want to accomplish internally, and they are allowed to have jurisdiction over their own public policy and their own goals. But where it starts to bleed into interstate Federal Power Act territory, they have to be really careful about making their case. Jigger, does this uh, give the green light to other states like Pennsylvania and Ohio that want to try to save their nuke plants too? Yeah, I look, I think that this is wrapped up in the 100% clean energy movement that, you know, we're experiencing now, right? I mean, the renewable portfolio standards had sort of plateaued for a few years because people weren't quite sure where to go with it. I think there were a lot of folks who were pushing 100% renewable energy, as we've discussed previously, but they were uncomfortable as to whether the data really showed that 100% renewable energy could power um, a state. And so, you know, they've gotten more comfortable with 100% clean energy goals. And we, we see a lot of them being passed, including Washington State this week, and Puerto Rico, and, you know, others that are in the works. And so, so you know, my sense is, is that, that this is a case where providing additional subsidies to nuclear, to me, means that we actually get these 100% clean energy standards passed. It's amazing how much has changed in just the last few years, there was so much hand-wringing going on about the retirement of a lot of these plants. States stepped up, and more states are going to follow. And it probably means that the framework is in place, depending on how these other legal cases go. 
it likely means that we have the framework in place to keeping a ton of nuclear generation online, which makes it a lot better for our midterm climate commitments as states and as a country. Yeah, and it's all built on the backs of all those folks who work to get state RPSs in place because that has now become the preferred policy and mechanism to use to get to uh, meet state goals. And so now they've just extended this to other clean energy technologies. So let's move to our free electrons to wrap up the show. Jigger, what is your story this week? So I was reading Yale 360, and um, they had a great article in there about how a bunch of scientists have come together to talk about how many trees it would really take to, um, to you know, reduce the amount of carbon emissions that we put into the ground the last 10 years. And it was about 1.2 trillion trees. Um, to put that into context, we have about 3 trillion trees in the world today. I was quite surprised, though, that that number is actually pretty small. So we're already on track to building to planting 100 billion new trees. So I don't think it's actually too hard to get to 1.2 trillion. And in fact, there's a lot of technology around drones that can drop seedlings and other things that can help us move more quickly um, to really sequester carbon, which, as you know, I believe very strongly that we have to sequester carbon to really stave off the worst impacts of climate change. On this front, what did you think of Shell's announcement that it's going to sell offset carbon offset gasoline by planting a bunch of trees. This is just an iteration of what we've seen major fossil fuel companies and large corporations do. D- does it have any meaning to you? So Lyft is doing the same thing for all of its rides. And I don't love it. I mean, it's fine. Look, it's, you know, like I- I'm not, I'm not going to say yes or no. There are people a lot smarter than me that'll figure out whether this is like, you know, sort of a a one-to-one offset that makes sense. But in general, I think the 1.2 trillion trees should be done by a Green New Deal, you know, done by Nor- Norway through their red, you know, investments, etc. I don't know that corporate offsets is the right way to do it. Catherine, what's your free electron? So since I'm going to be on spring break next week, I'm going to do two. <laughs> um, don't worry, it won't take too long. Oh, you don't need spring break for an excuse. That's You normally <laughs> come with two anyway. I do it anyway. So first is the investment tax credit for energy storage. I think this is the fourth Congress that it's been introduced. I think we have a real chance this time. It's uh, been introduced in both chambers, H.R. 2096 in the House, led by Congressman Doyle of Pennsylvania, and S. 1142 in the Senate, led by Senator Heinrich of New Mexico and Senator Gardner of Colorado. And I think there is an appetite to get a bunch of extenders done. This energy storage tax credit is a standalone. All it would do is pull out energy storage as a qualified technology out of the regular ITC would have the same phase out schedule as solar currently has. Um, So it's really just clarifying the code and allowing storage to take advantage of this credit. It'd probably open up at least a dozen more state markets for storage to pencil out and also buy down the cost of storage in all the states that are really active in storage. So please call your member of Congress or Senator and get them to get this thing done. We want it to be passed. Um, my business partner, Isaac Brown, has been incredibly busy on this, getting this done, and we would love to chalk that up as a big victory this year. Um, Are you going to retire if that happens? 
No, no, but we might have a shot of something strong. Um, <laughs> the second electron was just an article I was reading that um, that Zara Realty in Queens has 45 buildings, and they're going to put solar on every single rooftop of its buildings to as, the greatest extent possible. And they think it's going to be almost 3 million kilowatt hours of solar. Um, and this just shows how important it is for big developers in cities like New York um, to to really take that stand and say, all right, every single building I have is going to have solar on it. And this will help New York get to its, you know, the REV goals of 70% renewables by 2030 and the one NYC goals of, you know, reduced carbon by 80% by 2050. And, you know, I was really excited to see that in New York. Well, at some point, we're going to have to start talking about the Democratic presidential candidates. I want to probably hold off on a comprehensive conversation for as long as we can, because this election cycle is going to be very long. But, uh, you know, that that conversation will come. And I'm sure a new New York Times survey of the candidates on their climate and energy policies will inform part of that conversation. It was just released this morning. I read it when I was looking through my morning news. And I was actually struck at how varied the responses from the candidates were on things like a carbon tax and on promoting nuclear energy. So largely everyone in the field agrees that we need to live up to the Paris commitments or surpass them. We need to reintroduce Obama-era environmental regs. But they asked a couple questions about whether or not you support a carbon tax and whether or not you support new nuclear. And the response was mixed or the response from some candidates was non-existent. Some candidates issued enthusiastic responses about things like the Paris Climate Plan, but they decided not to comment on a carbon tax, leading one to believe that they don't want to say something that will get them in trouble. So anyway, I thought that was quite interesting because although most in the Democratic field are engaged in one-upsmanship and are clearly uh, as progressive as you can get on climate, when you dig down into the details, there's a lot of variation. And so I'm sure it'll offer up a good conversation at some point. One thing that's really interesting on the Democrat side is that Jay Inslee and others are pushing for one out of the 12 debates to focus solely on climate change, which I think would be great because you could tease out all of these um, nuances and issues and differences between the candidates uh, on climate change that way. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for being with us. You can find us in the usual channels. We're all there on Twitter, interacting with listeners. We'd love to hear from you. And the Energy Gang is there as well. If you like this show, if you get aggravated by what we say, if you get ramped up by what we say, if you learn something, send it on to people who you think would be interested in this show. We want to continue to spread the word about the really interesting trends underway in the energy transition. So give the gift of a good energy podcast and send a link to your your friends or colleagues via email or on social media. Thanks for for helping us out. Catherine, enjoy your spring break. Where are you going to be? Are you going to be on uh, uh, South Beach partying with all the college kids? No, I'm going to be in one of the top solar states in the country, North Carolina. I'm really excited. Ooh, what are you going to do there? You're not going just on solar farm tours, are you? No, no. I have a lot of family down. We're doing a big circuit down through Southern Virginia and through North Carolina where we have a lot of family. And then I'll end up going back there the following week for the North Carolina Energy Conference. Great. Well, Jigger and I are taking 
a uh, spring break as well just because Catherine's gone and we have some great content stacked up for you but we'll be back the following week when Catherine gets back so stay put we've got some great stuff coming into your feed Jigger what are you going to do with that extra free time <laughs> probably try to buy more on Amazon probably try to cut some more nuclear clean energy deals <laughs> I'm going to go shopping for microphones on Amazon or something <laughs> With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio.